I am unwilling to give up, that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show. I am so excited to have my next guest here. We have Bill Snow, who is the author of an incredible book that I have right here, in case you're watching our video, uh, author of mergers and acquisitions for dummies. And um, and I don't know if it's for dummies, but it's definitely for people who want the basics. And even if you are a very intelligent, uh, very knowledgeable uh, person, there's a ton of people who listen to the show who are leaders, who are entrepreneurs. Maybe you're going to be going through this process at some point uh, soon or in the, in the future. This is an awesome book to have on your shelf and uh, pretty quick read, but I think one that I'll keep on my shelf too for reference because it's uh, it's really, really that good. So Bill has over 30 years of professional experience, including two decades as an investment banker. Uh, I look forward to discussing his journey in the world of mergers and acquisitions, uh, but also how to properly plan for a deal and avoid the most likely pitfalls, plus his latest book, as I said, Mergers and Acquisitions for Dummies, is uh, such great insights for you to go back and look. If you're challenged with something right now, uh, it's probably in there if it has anything to do with M&A. So welcome, Bill. Thank you, Carol. Pleased to be here. Very excited. So uh, first of all, what inspired you to write this book? Being called by the publisher. Mm. <laughs> They there you go. They contacted me, and that's that's the story which I've I've told before. I'll be happy to give you a quick rundown. So I I wrote a book on venture capital twenty years ago because I was upset about a business deal that did not go well, and somebody said, "What the blank do you know about venture capital?" So I wrote this little thing that I turned into a little book. Didn't know what to do with it. It was called Venture Capital One Hundred and One. Gave that away for free. It was a very minor viral hit before that was a term. And all kinds of people were contacting me. And I remember thinking, if I knew what I was doing, I could do something with this. I was kind of like the dog that caught the car. And shortly after that, I segued into middle market investment banking. And then a few years after that, after I'd been doing the middle market M&A thing, Wiley Publishing contacted me. So a book, a copy of that little PDF, that I little booklet I created, ended up at Wiley. They were looking for someone to write LBOs for dummies. And after a long gestation, that became mergers and acquisitions for dummies. And we published initially in 11. And then the second edition just came out on May 31st here this year, 2023. Well, it's it's so, so good. It's such an interesting thing. I've been an entrepreneur for years and I know many entrepreneurs. And when you're actually taking money to grow your company, uh, you philosophically, I guess, if nothing else, know that you are going to need to have some sort of liquidity event, whether you're uh, doing an IPO or or you're potentially selling the company. Yet, I think so many people just, it's a black box for them to actually go and hire a banker. Who is the banker that they should hire? What should the deal structure be? All of these things. Uh, I loved your point 
uh, in the book that talks about how selling a company is often easier than buying a company. Can you share a little bit more about that? Sure, sure. It's it actually the reason I turned down the offer to be an investment banker. I think I, I was offered the job four or five times and I turned it down and the founder of that firm caught me in a moment of weakness and I said, okay, fine. Yes, I'll be an investment banker. Stop bothering me. Exaggerating, really not that much. I didn't really want to do, I'd, I'd done sales jobs before. I didn't really like that, you know, cold calling and dialing for dollars. Some people are good at that. That's just not what I enjoy. And I thought, okay, well, we'll give this a try. Well, the pleasant surprise is you realize when you're selling a company, which is a very limited resource, a difficult thing to find, a decent company, an owner who wants to sell, very hard to find. The buyers in the middle market world far outnumber the number of sellers. This is different than any of those who are chasing venture capital. What do we know? The people seeking venture capital far outnumber the VCs. So the VCs are just inundated with business plans, good, bad, and indifferent. So the inverse turned out to be true, as I discovered in middle market investment banking. Now, why is that? The analogy that I make, or the hypothetical rather, that I, I always say is think of somebody who's, say, 45, owns his own business, is very happy, makes a lot of money, made a couple million last year, has uh, plenty of money in the bank, is married, happily married, kids are young, healthy, everyone's doing fine. And he jumps out of work, or she could be a woman, obviously. She jumps out of work in the morning and can't wait to get to work. What are you going to offer that person who's making great money, loves what he or she is doing every single day, 45 years old? What am I going to do for the next 40 years of my life? You can't offer that person enough money. And so the mistake that I think a lot of buyers make is they view the M&A game as going to a grocery store, pushing a cart down the aisle and trying to decide what can of soup, what can of beans to select. And what they have to realize, roles are reversed. The seller, the business owners are the one pushing the cart. And the can of beans, the product, the commodity are the buyers. And quite often, especially for a good company, the decision to what partner to take, what buyer to take, rests with the seller. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn, quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip, Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. 
no English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is Super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. So interesting. So uh, what are kind of practical strategies to deal with that? I mean, I guess it's interesting. I was talking to somebody the other day who sold their company in, in tech. And the key thing that he said is that he sort of visualized being on that other side of the table. Like, why do they need me? And what is it that's going to actually uh, help them in some ways. And he said, it's amazing how you can kind of envision why your company, because you know what your company is and what the value is, but also how it it could really help them that they may not recognize. Yeah. Well, 
we call that strategic imperative, finding a buyer. So if you're selling, remember, there, there's two sides to the trade here. You've got the seller, you've got the buyer, and I've worked on, on both sides, not at the same time, which is helpful when you buy companies as well. But trying to find that buyer who has that strategic imperative. So you have a company, you put it together, you put the materials together, rather, the financials, the story, the products, history of the company, the executive team, et cetera, types of customers and so forth. And then what you want to do is get multiple offers. And if you get multiple offers, buyers will typically look at that and say, they'll ask a lot of questions. There's a lot of information in the book we put together, confidential information memorandum or SIM, they're typically called. And they will quite often these companies that are for sale have been on a short list. Yeah, we're familiar with that. We've seen it at trade shows. Yeah, we've always thought about that. So they might see something. They might see a company that, wow, they've got a great product in a sector that we don't cover. This is really plugging a hole if we make this acquisition, or they're selling to a cohort of buyers that we don't have access to. That would open up our salespeople, not just for the products we're acquiring, but for the products that we're selling right now. So there could be a lot of different reasons, value-add, strategic imperative, as we call it, that a buyer might have. And it's up to the buyer to see that. And and usually they do see that. And that's why if you run a process and you get multiple offers, you'll see a trading band where different groups have no idea the other exists. And the valuation, the structure is quite similar. And quite often you'll see that that one outlier. And that's the one that sees some sort of strategic imperative, the need to do the deal more than other people. I have so many questions, but uh, I'll, in no particular order, I'll probably fire some off here. And many of them you talk about in the book as well. But so in an M&A process, uh, you may have private equity um, sitting there. You may also have strategics. Um, can you explain kind of the difference of, of, uh, of what that looks like for an entrepreneur? Sure. And that's a great question. And one of the things that we always ask an entrepreneur, business owner, what are you looking to accomplish? Because that's where it should start. What are you looking to to get done? Do you want to sell the business entirely and be out? You're going to work a transition period, perhaps, but you want to retire and, and move off to, to Florida or Arizona or something like that. Uh, are you looking to create some liquidity, maybe sell a minority stake or a majority stake, hold on to 20, 30, 40% of the company, work for a few more years and then sell it? So it starts with with what they want to do. A strategic buyer, quite often, not always, will want to buy the entire company. Maybe the strategic buyer has a management team and, and can tuck the existing business into their operation. Sometimes not. Sometimes they, they run lean and they're going to need to have a new GM or president come in there. But they're, they're typically going to want to buy the whole thing. Maybe they'll buy it over a period of time and help create some value and pay some more over a period of time. But they're going to want to own the whole thing. Private equity firm is quite often might want to buy the whole company, might want to say that we'll buy 70%. Uh, we would like you to hold on to 30% of the company. We'll work together in four, five, six years. We'll look at selling maybe to a strategic or a larger private equity firm. And then you get the the second, the so-called second bite of the apple. So it really depends on what the buyer is looking to accomplish. And how do valuations vary with those uh, different types of buyers as well? Typically, the strategics were paying a higher valuation, a higher multiple, but we're seeing so much, especially over the last decade, decade and a half with, with low interest rates. Obviously, we've been raising interest rates more recently, but that that low interest rate environment, zero interest rate policy, ZERP, flooded the market with, with money. Everybody had capital. The cost of obtaining capital was really low. And what happened is that created a lot more demand 
that doesn't necessarily increase supply. As we said, mm -hmm. if you're talking to someone that has a nice business, what am I going to do? You know, some, yeah, I can get a lot of money. I'm making a lot of money. I'm totally happy. What am I going to do with my life? I'm not going to sell. You couldn't offer me enough money to sell the business. And so what that did is that tended to put the valuations up. And so quite often we're seeing private equity firms bidding higher than than what we saw before because they're so, uh, I don't want to say desperate, but they have a strong initiative to get that money out and working. And so quite often we'll see them being the strongest bidders in terms of the valuation of the deal. So you mentioned the cost of money and, and especially in today's economy, what helps and what hurts a company's valuation when you look at, you know, the structure, uh, you know, maybe it, it's the, the comps on a, on a category or it, it, within an industry, but I'm super curious if that's changed significantly uh, in the last year and a half? Yeah. Uh, the What helps and hurts valuation is, is going to be pretty much pretty much the same. So what helps valuation is a growing company, uh, growing bottom line, EBITDA at least 10%, the, the higher the better, of course, diversified customer base, so no concentrations with a big customer, uh, no issues with vendors. In other words, they're not a single source uh, supplier, they've got multiple uh, sources, and, and those vendors don't have any financial weakness. Uh, an, an owner, and this is this is one of the most difficult things, especially for middle market, lower middle market companies. An owner who is expendable. So quite often, that owner, that entrepreneur, has been the center point of the company. Maybe he's in charge of sales, or all the sales go through uh, him or her. Uh, that person's in charge of design, overseeing everything. Ev almost every facet of the business goes to that person. Well, you take that person out of the puzzle. What do you have left? You're going to be struggling, and so it's difficult for business owners, I think, sometimes to take that step back. But if they can take that step back make themselves expendable where they're not needed, the company actually will be worth more. What hurts a company? The opposite of all that. So an owner that is viewed as integral to the success of the business, uh, a big concentration with a, a customer, low margin business uh, might hurt. You know, The smaller company, certainly if the company is in declining sales or the profits are decreasing, that's going to hurt. And, and that might be a falling knife, in which case it might be almost impossible to find a buyer. Buyers will typically wait until the knife hits the ground before or picking it up. Interesting. So do you leave the the owners in then? Uh, like, I mean, if you're sitting there trying to figure out what is the strategy, then you know you're going to go and get some liquidity and, and sell the company, but do you leave the owners in? Or do you, uh, if you think that that's going to harm the company, I mean, rather than actually, you know, ripping the Band-Aid off, I guess, knowing that yeah. Maybe that person is not going to be in uh, in a private equity or a strategic for a long period of time. Yeah. Um, what what do you do? Well, good question, and and again, that depends what the owner is looking to do. So, I want to get out entirely. Okay, fine. You know, I'm happy to work six months a year, whatever. Reasonable transition, of course. I want to make sure the company's successful. New owner, I care about my employees, but I want to retire and I want to be out entirely. So we want to communicate that to the buyers. We're not interested in, in selling 60, 70% of the business. The owner wants to sell 100% of the business. The owner's not interested in working for multiple years. You're going to, and the owner is very important. So you know what? You're going to need to find a new president to run the business. You have to disclose all of that up front. And what happens is some buyers might say, 
that, that's not for us. You know, we, we want to buy a majority piece, but we want to see that owner have a, a sizable ownership stake, work for another four, five, six, seven years, whatever, and then maybe retire. We don't have anybody that we can plug in. Other groups might say that's perfect. We, we want to do the Vulcan mind meld and get all the information we can out of the owner and then push him aside or her aside. We've got a new president, someone we've been looking to put in or promote. And sometimes private equity firms will back an executive. So they have somebody they really like who's been successful running companies and that PE firm and that executive will partner together to find a company. So in other words, a company that says the owner wants to sell 70% and I want to stick around for five more years, probably not going to work for that PE firm with an executive. person who wants to retire and get out entirely would be a good fit if that PE firm is backing an executive and is looking for the right type of investment. So what are some of the re- real reasons why M&A deals do not close? We hear about failed processes along the way. Uh, yeah, you know, what, yeah. what is your take on that? Yeah, a number of things. The biggest is an adverse material change. So what's that? A big customer. This is our 30% customer just fired us. So that is going to be obviously a big diminishment to revenue and profit. That might scuttle deals or certainly cause buyers to reprice deals or maybe just walk away. Uh, shifting sands, I call it. That's when an owner says, you, you can run some numbers and say, yeah, we, we think it will trade at you know 20 million, let's say. And you start getting offers and they're upper teens, low 20s. Okay, it's right around where we thought. And the owner says, I want $100 million. Well, that's the shifting sands. Okay, that that's great. I'm not going to be able to get that. It's a nice business. It's worth about 20. Someone's not going to pay that. So we'll see that as well. Uh, the falling knife, as I, as I mentioned before, so a business that is uh, losing revenue and is, is in a decline, that's going to be difficult to find a buyer. They're going to wait until things bottom out and the business starts to to come up again. Interesting. So today, obviously, profitability, EBITDA is really critical. I feel like most bankers say that it sort of goes in waves. Uh, but if you maintain or or can actually grow the EBITDA and your growth has gone down, uh, like how do you think that is viewed? It, the revenues have dropped, but the EBITDA has gone mm-hmm. up. Uh, you want the very specific MBA answer, very precise yep. answer? Let's hear it. It depends. Yeah. It depends. Yep. Okay. Uh, so that we'd have to look at, well, what's going on? What's driving that? Has this been a, a change where we have a new technique to uh, create the, uh, the product that we're selling or, or a new source for the raw materials? Uh, is this decline in sales just driven by you know something short term or, or does this auger a declining market that's going to go out of business? Okay. So we're, we're you know, the, the old buggy whip analogy, right? Are we making buggy whips? Are we making payphone booths? You know, why why is the revenue going down? So you'd have to understand on a case by case basis why that revenue is going down. And if if the profits are going up, that would be a unique situation, but you'd have to understand on a very specific granular level what's driving that, what's going on. Is there a category or industry that seems to be uh, kind of foolproof uh, for being able to sell today? I, I guess I always hear about the beauty industry, that it just seems like those are, uh, that there's always buyers for beauty products. I'm, I'm so curious what you think about, is there any industry that, you know, is, is uh, foolproof? Yeah. Yeah, the, the foolproof is good company, mm-hmm. good company owner with reasonable expectations. Uh, 
you know, you can look at what's going on. Uh, you know, what, what does Warren Buffett say? You know, invest in what you know. So he's buying what Dairy Queen and Coca-Cola and things that he likes. Okay. Uh, and, and you can look at that. Well, what's going to be, what's going to be changing in terms of this product or this, this service? And those are much more larger systemic issues, but a good company. So in other words, if the company is growing, the revenue is growing, the profits are growing at, at roughly a commensurate level and it, it's well run doesn't have any concentrations and you have an owner who's reasonable with expectations. I'm not saying give it away or, or take a cut rate price, but reasonable with expectations, good company owner with reasonable expectations, pretty close to hundred percent chance. You're going to get a really good deal. Uh, so quality of earnings reports, enhancing the value of the company. I'd love to hear uh, you talk a little bit about that. Sure, sure. Yeah, that that's something that years ago I used to poo-poo. Oh, I don't need a quality of earnings. I'll just negotiate anything. That's just, you know, 40, 50, 60 grand that, that the owner's going to have to spend. But what has happened is we've had this, and I've called it Frankenstein's Monsters, the adjustments to EBITDA. So EBITDA is not even GAAP. It was invented by a, a executive in the cable business years ago as a way to measure the profitability of the business if you took away borrowing money and paying taxes and uh, depreciating assets over a period of time and things like that, if it was just doing what it's supposed to do in a vacuum, basically. So now we've introduced adjustments to EBITDA. What's that? Adding back one-time only expenses, adding back the owner's compensation. If the owner can go away and you don't need to replace him or making a, an adjustment that, okay, the owner took out a million bucks, you could find somebody for 300. That's a 700,000 adjustment. Things like that. Timing issues, uh, that's what the quality of earnings will do. We'll set up that those expenses really, those addbacks really are addbacks. They're really one time only. And that's important because quite often adjusted EBITDA is what drives the valuation, not just EBITDA, but adjustments to EBITDA. The audits and reviews that accounting firms do, which are very helpful, that sets up an explanation of EBITDA. You can figure out the EBITDA calculation when you have an audit or a review. The quality of earnings helps quantify the adjustments to earnings, adjustments to EBITDA. And that sets up quite often what the valuation would be. So that's why I highly encourage anybody looking to sell a business, do a sell side quality of earnings uh, 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 report, have that prepared before you go to market. And this way you'll have your accountant on your staff, you'll have the investment banker, and you'll have the accounting firm that did the Q of E being able to support those numbers. That allows us to say to a buyer, here's how we view earnings of the business. After you take it over, we have a report by a reputable firm, what the earnings will look like when you take it over. And so we have the buyer, instead of us responding to what the buyer might come up with, the buyer's responding to what we're coming up with. We're grabbing that high ground and making them fight uphill, so to speak. And that's called a? Quality of earnings report. Q of E. Okay. And that is, uh, and that is your existing, who, who does that for you? Well, an accounting firm. Um, and, and this, this is great because now you can hire another accounting firm. So you can use your incumbent firm. That's, that's not a problem, but we do recommend a third party, yet another accounting firm to do that, just to have that independent voice. And, and accounting firms, reputable accounting firms are used to this. So we're doing the review for the firm and now another firm's going to come in and do the Q of E. Well, guess what? That reputable firm that's doing review is probably doing Q of E's for other uh, companies that are being represented by uh, the second accounting firm. 
So you're buy, you're hiring a an investment uh, banker to help you actually sell your company. Is there a uh, normal um, compensation that 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 investment banker is going to get? I mean, if you're at a tier A firm versus a smaller, maybe that is uh, one compensation. But I'm so curious, like, what is the range that we make? Uh, yes. Oh, that's secret. We can't tell you that. It's you're you're, you're going to pay. It depends from firm to firm. Uh, the bigger the firm, uh, I mean, in terms of the well, it depends firm to firm. But in terms of the the company that you're selling, the bigger the company, probably the the um, fee, the success fee as a percentage will be smaller. A smaller company, that success fee as a percentage. Will probably be bigger, so it's usually somewhere around three percent, three and a half percent, something like that. Now, if it's a really big firm where these the uh, uh, proceeds might be in the hundreds of millions of dollars, that investment banker is probably going to take a a smaller fee, two percent, one percent. Again, it really depends. A smaller transaction that maybe is a, a three, four million dollar transaction, that fee might end up being six, eight, ten percent, which seems like a lot. Because just because it's a smaller deal does not mean less work is involved. Quite often, the smaller transactions are a lot more difficult. So it really, I put 3% as kind of your, your guidepost. The bigger, the bigger the deal, maybe that comes down a little bit. The smaller the deal, maybe that, that fee is going to go up a little bit too. So now that I've got your book, do I even need an investment banker, right? One of the things that, that I, uh, have been asked is, uh, and, and I know people who have been able to go out to people that they think had shown interest or they should have interest. Sure. Do you need one? Sure. Sure. Uh, you don't need us. I, I think it's, it's highly recommended that you hire an advisor when you're engaging in probably the largest transaction of your career. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, but numerous reasons why you'd want to work with a reputable, um, investment banking firm. One is the buffer between the buyer and seller. So quite often the seller might be upset with something the buyer is doing or trying to do. And without that buffer, maybe that deal gets... Well, I've had that happen where if the my client, the seller, was talking with the buyer, the deal would have been over. The, the string of obscenities and insults would have just killed it. Well, I can be the buffer and I can deliver that message in a more professional manner. Uh, confidentiality is another reason. So you hire an investment banking firm. Well, we reach out to a buyer. The buyer doesn't know who we're representing. We'll send them a teaser. It's a blind teaser. Sometimes they can reverse engineer, but they're not going to know. When you're the president of a company and you call up another company, they're going to know that your company. You you can't have that uh, that confidentiality. Um, a full-time focus is something else. So if you're running a business, trying to sell a business, put all the materials together, set up a data room, go through due diligence, negotiate everything. That is a full-time job, going through all the offers, sorting them out, negotiating. You've got a full-time job running the business. So you should hire people who will be able to focus full-time on on doing the the transaction that you're looking to do. I've heard uh, buyers say that they don't want to be a part of a process. Uh, So they won't actually show up um, for processes, or they say that they're never part of a process. Uh, I'm sure you've heard that in the past. Sure, sure. How real is that? And obviously, uh, or, or maybe not obvious to, to people, like, why is that, that people say that? And are they bluffing? Are they, uh, what, what do you think about sure. that statement? Sure. Well, 
that kind of gets into the valuation aspect. And so valuation, as I've told people, is a very complicated formula, Kara. It largely depends upon what side I'm representing. That's a joke. Uh, the reason that you wouldn't want to get into a process is you're going to have multiple bidders, multiple buyers, and only one company that's for sale. So it's not like having a factory where you're cranking out some sort of widget. Oh, we've got great demand. Well, let's hire another shift. Let's get some more raw materials. Let's crank out. Let's get a second shift going and crank out more of this because we want to meet the market demand. When you're selling a company, you have just one company. You can't replicate it. It's one and done. And so the buyers, sometimes they'll they'll get into a process and they'll submit the initial offer. We call that an indication of interest. But a lot of times they they don't. They want to have a proprietary deal mm-hmm. where it's ours. I'm trying to work out a deal with the owner. They're not talking to anybody else because I'm going to be putting time and spending money and so forth, investing before we even get this thing done. And I want to have a, a high probability that I'm the one that if it's it's either me or nobody. So best tips and tactics for actually getting uh, getting a deal done and hoping that it doesn't fall out of the process, I guess. Hope is not a strategy. So, uh, yes. right. So um, you talk a little bit about that in the book, but I'd love to sort of close it out with that question for you. Communication, disclosure, uh, honesty. Okay. There's, there's nothing wrong with, with being a uh, a, a tough negotiator, okay, but you you can't lose your head. You, you can't uh, scream. I'm talking about about both sides. You want to be reasonable. I found that negotiating is, is probably my favorite part of this. It's not it's not bluffing. It's it's not demanding. It's not screaming. That doesn't get anything done. It's explaining the reason why you need to do something in a certain way or why you want to get something. That goes, I think, a lot farther if you have a good rapport with the other side. Uh, to be able to get the deal done. If you're a buyer, yeah, if you can get a proprietary deal, I think that's important. The buyer should start with, what are you looking for? And I think a mistake buyers make is they just cast this wide net, I'll look at anything. Well, maybe you should look at some specific reasons and then reach out to specific companies on a, on a short list and have a thesis, a reason why. Listen, if we acquire you or we combine in this way or that way, here's what we think we can do. Here's what we're seeing in the market. I would love to get your opinion. And then on the other side, for sellers who are looking to to sell, Put together their plan. What are you looking to accomplish? Put together a list of, of buyers. There you can cast a wider net. And some might self-select. You know, it's part of a process. We're not interested. Others aren't afraid of that. Hey, it looks like a good fit. We want to make a go at this business. So it really depends, again, what the seller wants to do or what the buyer, when you're looking at the buy side, what the, what that company, what that acquisition-minded company is looking to accomplish. Bill, this is a lot of wisdom. Uh, incredible to uh, to have you here as a voice of reason and uh, knowledge for sure. Mergers and acquisitions for dummies is awesome. And like I said, whether you're looking at selling a company today or in the future, or you just want to be armed with being able to go to dinner with somebody who has, uh, this is an awesome book that is, uh, it is really, really terrific. So thank you so much. We'll have all the info on Bill and also the book in the show notes too. So thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. Thanks again for listening to the Kara Golden Show. If you would, please give us a review and feel free to share this podcast with others who would benefit. And of course, feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of our podcast. Just a reminder that I can be found on all platforms at Kara Golden 
And if you want to hear more about my journey, I hope you will have a listen or pick up a copy of my book, Undaunted, which I share my journey, including founding and building Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And thanks everyone for listening. Have a great rest of the week and 2023 and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.